Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like "Where did your band name come from?" and "Who's your favorite Friends character?" We're asking questions like "Why did your marriage fail?" "Where does love come from?" "Is God real?" It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passion. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. And as usual, before we get started, we have just a couple of pieces of housekeeping. First, as usual, this show is only possible because of your support and because of the happy few who support me over on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and there for $1 a month or $5 a month, you will get an extra patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics, in which my assistant Justin and I talk about everything from gay sex to God to Jesus to his journey into Hindu spirituality to my journey out of traditional Christianity and basically everything under the sun. It is uh, very not safe for public consumption and very not safe for work. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what you're paying the money for. So if, uh, if that interests you and if you want to help this show grow, help me keep leveling up to better equipment, better studio conditions, uh, if you want to help Justin get paid, then please <laughs> go support me over on Patreon and I will continue to bring you interesting conversations every single week. Two. My colleague Matt Langston and I of Rock Candy Recordings, are uh, we are starting a podcast network uh, called Rock Candy Podcasts, and we will produce your podcast. We have an entire backlog library of music for your use. We will take whatever idea you have, really polish it up, help you create something really interesting and engaging and plug you into a community of creators who are doing the same thing so that we can all promote one another and support each other. And if this interests you, if you have a podcast or you are thinking of starting one and you are interested in joining a network of like-minded creators, then please message me on Twitter. You can email me by going to stephenbradfordlong.com. You can find me on Instagram at stephenbradfordlong. And uh, I cannot wait to hear what ideas you have for your show. All right. Well, today I have the honor of speaking to J. Mace III. J. Mace III is a black trans queer poet and educator based in Seattle by way of Philly. He is the author of If I Should Die Under the Knife, Tell My Kidney, I Was the Fiercest Poet Around, as well as And Then I Got Fired, One Trans Queer's Reflections on Grief, Unemployment, and Inappropriate Jokes About Death. As an educator, J. Mace has worked with thousands of community members in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada on the needs of 
of LGBTQIA youth and adults in spaces such as K through 12 schools, universities, faith communities, and restricted care facilities, among others. He is the founder of Awkward, the first ever trans and queer people of color specific talent agency. Currently, he is co editing the Black Trans Prayer Book with Awkward artist Lady Dane. As a performer, he has shared stages with world renowned artists like Chuck D and the Indigo Girls. His work and musings have been featured on MSNBC, NBC Out, Essence Live, Atlanta Black Star, Go Magazine, Believe Out Loud, Everyday Feminism, Black Girl Dangerous, Upworthy, The New York Times, BuzzFeed, The Root, The Huffington Post, and more. All right, Mace, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you. That intro is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes you got to contextualize it for the people. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on Sacred Tension. I so appreciate it. Most of Again, I'm just excited to be here and to talk about some faith things. Awesome. So uh, before we get started, just tell us some about who you are and what you do and what you're passionate about. So who am I? So uh, yeah, so basically I would say that I'm a black trans person from a Muslim and Christian upbringing that is invested in ending religious-based oppression and violence that impacts my community. Mm. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? That 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 faith so you focus in particular on faith-based oppression. Mm-hmm. I focus so, on a, I'm sorry. So so when you say faith-based oppression, what yeah. in particular do you have in mind? What specific experiences are you referring to? So for me when I think about faith-based oppression and and faith uh based religious violence, like religious violence period, uh, that looks a lot of different ways. That's the ways, so for myself and some of the stuff that I know that we're going to be chatting about today is about the ways that regardless of whether or not I myself as a trans person see myself as religious, other people's religiosity impacts my ability to access work, impacts my family spaces, impacts my ability to gain income, to hold down a job, to access healthcare, all those things. So anything in which religious values and particularly white supremacist narratives around faith uh, can cause me to not be able to live fully. That's the kind of stuff I'm targeting. Awesome. And and so this is really ubiquitous stuff. I mean, this stuff is everywhere as well mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, it's like saying, asking, does a fish know they're wet? Do white heteronormative cis people know that our religious systems and political systems are oppressing certain minorities? No, we don't. Um, unless it's pointed out to us uh, or or unless we have kind of the moral integrity and, and conscience to to be able to look at it more deeply. But the stuff that you're talking about is really deeply embedded in our culture. This is mm-hmm. stuff that goes very, very deep. Now, you're also a poet. Mm-hmm. And could, could you talk some about that and, and, and some of what you do there? Uh, so, yeah. So, I've had the blessing of performing uh, lots of different places. I'm at this point in my career. I've been a full-time artist for a number of years now. And so, to me, the arts is also one of the few accessible workplaces for trans folks of color that oftentimes mm. we get, like, people love to quote stats about us, about what our life expectancy is, about, like, violence that we'll experience, about lack of access to housing, but never talk about the ways that we're actually able to create work for ourselves or how can we, you know? And so I, like many (laughs) trans folks of color, got pushed out of nine to five work, but have been, but knew since the time I was a child that I wanted to be a poet. And so uh, in one way, it's kind of, uh, it's often challenging for us to find work. But for me, it was a blessing to be able to say, I've always been a poet for, (laughs) you know, and it allows me yeah. time to even be able to dive more into the faith things as I would like to or any other kind of activism work that I want to dive into. So 
when you say that you have been kind of pushed out of nine to five, help, help me understand what that looked like for you. So for me, I would say the kind of daily antagonism that you take on as a black person in the U.S., as a trans person, especially when those things intertwine, uh, the ways that you have to focus your day to act as if you're, everything is normal so that you can come to a meeting at 10 a.m. and be fine, right? When maybe you just had a friend that was attacked. Maybe someone just hassled you and followed you down the, the subway for a few hours. Maybe then when you got there, your HR department um, didn't want to recognize your name and you maybe you didn't get a paycheck that week, but you got to show up and act like everything is cool, like your same coworkers that might be white and cis and got eight hours of sleep the night before have money in the bank, <laughs> like all their stuff together, right? Um, but you got to, so I think stuff like that. So for me, I got the moments, for me, it's, it's sort of a combination of things. Uh, and I'd gotten fired from a job after I had to take off some time to t- care for a family member and realized I didn't want to go back to a place <laughs> where I was being constantly antagonized. And I didn't yeah. want to fight to work with other people that were constantly creating dangerous and violent situations for me. Yeah. And and did you feel like you had you were being expected to kind of act like everything was normal and okay mm-hmm. when things weren't to maintain the the comfort and and I don't know the the sense of comfort and security for the people around you at work. Most definitely, most definitely. I uh, actually had a uh, <laughs> a lot of different situations. One, I remember this one place. I was the last place I worked for another person, um, and I was working for a university. I remember there was another trans young person, trans youth of color, that was uh, one of our employees at a at a student affairs department, and that student was um, being harassed outside of their apartment that day with mm. a weapon by someone. And like most people, they were very caught off guard by the incident. They had themselves locked up in their apartment and they ended up not coming into work. My boss's response was to fire them the next week because she said they didn't want the job enough, right? Uh, because Jesus Christ. Yeah. So so that kind of that kind of dehumanizingness in yeah. which the violence that happens to us, we're just supposed to be used to it. I got held up by the police outside of a place I was working um and it was a place that we had rented just for the summer. For, outside of the things. place you were working. Yeah. Outside, outside of, of your own workplace. Outside, yeah. And so my okay. uh, space had um, rented out this uh, uh, site on a campus for just the summer. And when we came back, we were coming back for the next summer to figure out where we were going to be doing this uh, this event that we were doing every year. And they wanted to have it the same exact place we had just gotten held up by the police, myself and other Black, trans, and queer people, because we should be used to dealing with the police in such a way uh. in which we're always harassed, you know? So stuff like that, I would say, pushed okay. me out of wanting to work with and work for other people. Sure. That, mm-hmm. okay, so... And, and, you know, you mentioned how a lot of people love throwing out these stats about the right. lived experience of of trans and and people of color and, and queer people in, in general and so on. What I think is so important about about people who are communicators and, and artists and, and craftspeople is is uh, giving giving flesh and story to those to those stats and, and real and, and helping us understand that there's so much more than just these stats, that, that there are these human intricacies and lives and beautiful lives um, behind those. And would you say that that's part of your goal with, with some of your poetry is to break down, like, is to, is to get past this idea that people are just numbers and to, and to get, get build empathy 
Well, that's the thing. So this is what something I'll share. <laughs> yes, yes, please. You know, uh, a while ago, I was looking at a study that said that um, it was by some doctor that was talking about uh, brainstem injuries. And so what the doctor was saying is that usually when someone has a brainstem injury, the person that incurs the injury will be told this injury is never going to heal. And so what the study was saying is that it's not that it's going to heal, not going to heal. It's that it's going to heal so slowly and the sales will regenerate so slowly, it's not going to matter in your lifetime. And so I think that oftentimes we waste a lot of time trying to build empathy with communities of people that won't change enough for it to mean something. And so I think for a lot of, especially like white folks, cis folks, um, there's this place in which there's this want to pour into them and their own education versus I would say my work is about communicating with other black and brown folks, with other trans folks, especially like black trans folks and brown trans folks um, to say like, what you're experiencing, you're not crazy. That is actually happening to you. And you have a right to demand something else. I really, really respect that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you know, so I am gay and mm-hmm. I, I was raised here in the South. And, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn is I'm not responsible for I'm not responsible for changing the minds of all all the straight people out there and all the straight Mm -hmm. Christians. But that that I think has been the really, really hard journey for me. When I so so when someone like me asks a question like what I just asked, Mm -hmm. do you hear in that? And, and I'm just being really self-critical here because I think that's important. Do mm-hmm. you hear in that this white bias expectation that it is your job to explain your life to me? Is is that what you hear in that? Well, let me let me say this too. Okay. Um, I never feel a responsibility to explain myself to anyone. But <laughs> good, good. <laughs> but, uh, what I would share in that uh, in that question, what I do feel like in those questions is that. Because I don't think that you're the only person. I don't think just white people ask me questions like that, right? Okay. I get asked that question by people of all different types of identities because we have all been trained by that same white supremacist, cis-sexist space that says that we actually have to default to educating these people, especially people of power, <laughs> right? Uh, versus actually pouring into other people. That's also a trick of the systems that we all live in. So just like you live in that system, I live in that system. For a long time, my work was about like educating people and like trying to build this empathy of people that have proven they don't have empathy. Yes, right? exactly. Because even that story I'm telling, like my boss knew that the person that she was firing was a trans person of color. She heard the story in which someone was dealing with experiences. And she what? didn't care. And she didn't care. She looked this person in the face and was smiling as she fired them, right? Right. When I was um, dealing with the police situation at this um, organization I was doing lots of work with, right? Um, when I told, and myself and other Black folks told these white, mostly queer cis people, so I will say that mostly white queer cis people, we had just experienced this interaction with the police. They burst into tears. So many of them cried and were like, I can't believe this happened to you. But when it came down to it and we actually had to, and there was this space of holding people accountable, nobody wanted to hold the police or the institution that um, uh, created the space in which we were, uh, uh, where we were profiled by the police accountable because they didn't want to make those people feel bad about something that traumatized right. us. Right, right, right. right. So, yeah. so when the rubber meets the road, a, a lot of people have these big emotions and, and experience mm-hmm. empathy. But, but, okay, so this is actually something that I, I personally think that empathy is overrated and that what we really need to be 
pursuing is is compassion and compassion-based action because empathy is really um, going to lead us astray. It's very often very limited and it does not in in and of itself do anything. It is compassion that has to be our underlying um, principle, in my opinion. I think if we if we swap out empathy, empathy is good, empathy is great, but at the end of the day, uh, we just have to act compassionately regardless of what we feel, regardless of, of a lack or presence of feeling empathy. Mm. Um, yeah, you look like you yes. have thoughts. Yeah, I do have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, tell me, <laughs> tell me. Uh, so what I would ask and what I would reflect back even um, yes. for everybody listening to is um, thinking about like what is actually, what would be the end goal? So like, if let's say like using whether it's empathy or compassion, acknowledging that we all have very different end goals. Because to me, when I talk mm. to folks, especially when I talk to white folks about racial justice pieces, especially as we think about the, the LGBTQ community as a whole and the ways that racial justice plays out or lack of racial justice plays out with who gets resources, all that kind of stuff. And I would say like, what do you want, to, what do you imagine to be like a productive way that we can say that we have created racial justice or racial equity? And so the things that I would get reflected back by white folks is like, oh, that we can have conversations in which people are able to talk about these things or oh that we have you know some leadership like we have like an executive director who's maybe a person of color right or or that we have these things versus to me when we talk about justice and equity that means acknowledging that we participate constantly in systems that are messed up that means that these white organizations that exist that hold all the coins that those have been stealing money from black and brown communities for years and acknowledging that those organizations shouldn't even exist right it means um, being uh, accountable to the fact that capitalism is also a, is is rooted in <laughs> the violence against targeted and marginalized communities. It's about um, it's about reparations. It's about saying that I can't shouldn't be able to write a grant of the experiences of targeted communities so that I can make a paycheck without also <laughs> paying into those communities or asking why do marginalized and targeted communities have to beg for money from mm-hmm. people who've been using our labor for years anyway, right? Um, so, yeah, so I would say it's, it's even also the belief of understanding that something very horribly, that not just that these things are happening, but that people are participating in them. That people that, especially as we talk about religious spaces today, the places that I find are the most cocky when it comes to racial justice and trans justice and not doing anything and feeling validated not doing anything are religious spaces because they feel like they have some kind of grace put over them. Yeah, right? and, and, and by this, are you referring to basic, like the whole spectrum of progress? Progressive to conservative. Yes. Um, so, so this is including uh, like white progressive people in this. Yes. As well, especially because when I hear the word progressive, I actually was at a church myself and my colleague, Lady Dane Figueroa We were uh, speaking at a church uh, this past weekend, actually, and um, the word progressive kept coming up. And so I had mm. to stop people. I said, "You all do know that progressive is only a white word, right? Like that black and brown people don't sit around calling ourselves progressive. We're just trying to live, right?" <laughs> uh, that's yeah. a that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. So could you talk some about what you run into in these, especially in the communities that are deemed progressive, that are deemed, you know, the good white liberal progressive communities? What do you what do you run into as forms of transphobia and racism? And, and just discrimination mm-hmm. in general? That's such a yeah, so so many different things. So so James Baldwin has this quote that says um, the most highly segregated hour in America is high noon on a Sunday, right? Exactly. 
And so you come into spaces in which I remember I was working with this uh, this one church and I was working with them on policy and procedure stuff around being more trans inclusive or whatever, whatever language that we were using at that moment. And so when I was going through with them, we were and I was with them for all day and we're in for like two hours and I'm having them go through all their policies and what their actual practices, all that kind of stuff. And someone on their uh, one of their committees stops me and says, well, you know, Mace, when, when you came in, did you feel affirmed? Like we have all these like rainbows everywhere. We got the signage. We got the gender neutral bathroom. We got all of it. And I said, you know, when I came in, I came in during lunchtime. Right. And I sat by the door and I made sure to smile at everybody that came in the door. And nobody looked at me in the face for the first half hour until two or three uh, black elders that also go to the church, not trans or queer elders, but black to straight elders saw me sitting in the corner by myself and sat down at lunch with me. That was the first time someone said anything to me because in this massively, overwhelmingly white church, when you all said trans people, you did not think about black people. You did not think about young black people. You did not think that I was going to, like looking at like uh, uh, someone who lives in a city, you, you expected a certain type of person with a certain type of look to be the trans person that you wanted to uplift, which is also centering whiteness and white supremacy, right? So the ways that we even talk about transness oftentimes in faith spaces and in many spaces is a default of white supremacy. When we look at... Could you could you say that one more time? What what kind of space is a default? When we look at transness as a yes. default of whiteness, yes. that that is being steeped in white supremacy. Got it. Okay. And that's perpetuating, right? So when we look at... And so for me, if I can go into some history, is that okay? Please do. Yeah. So if we look at conquistadors like Balboa that came to North America in the 1500s, and we look at the ways that he was so clear about documenting, seeing gender non-conforming bodies and people that we would consider trans today, um, or in the expansiveness of that, because there's so many different roles about what that meant and what that means. But here was a cat who was coming in from the Catholic Church who saw his role at, in, as part of colonization that he knew that in order to colonize a people, you can't just specifically show up with weapons. You also have to kill the legacy and the history of the people. And so when he saw folks that were outside of what he deemed as good Christian white values as these gender non-conforming people that were given also leadership roles, spiritual roles, he didn't just kill the trans and gender non-conforming brown and black folks that he ran into. He also killed everyone that saw them and upheld their rights to leadership. So he killed whole towns, right? And so his yeah. his legacy wasn't just um, doing that here in North America, but so this was a practice that was also repeated in other parts of the world. He was just really good at documenting it, right? And so when I think about that, I have to acknowledge that transphobia on this continent started as a symptom of white supremacy, mm. right? And so when you look at who consistently comes up against the uh, legislation of trans people, like when we legislate against trans bodies, black and brown people bear the brunt of that, right? So whether it's in the 1800s and 1600s and 1700s, in which it was normal to kill indigenous folks and black slaves and black Africans that were coming over to be put into slavehood, that anyone that was seen as not being able to produce for that system was killed. And so that included us, right? When you look at even pre-actual laws on the books, because the first laws in the U.S. against trans people didn't happen until like the late 1800s. It's like we were still <laughs> being prosecuted under morality laws that were tied to the church and were tied to all these other things simply for existing. And so when we look at, we also have to think about ways that trans people experience violence without people having to say the word trans in the U.S. and other places, right? Which is deeply tied to the ways that we over-police and over-pathologize black and brown people. Does this make sense? It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think mm -hmm. even when I look at church structures, like I think about um, 
I think about United Methodist churches that pride themselves on being anti-slavery, right? Um, but when they were also coming into fruition as United Methodist Church, them being against slavery didn't also mean that they were for ordaining black people. Oh, they were not, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a very clear thinker on this subject. So so bear bear with me if if you will. But a lot of, as you're saying, a lot of progressive people who call themselves progressive come out of a tradition of not actually being progressive. Is that what I'm hearing you say? That of not truly, of not, of, of, of partial acceptance or partial inclusion. And because it's just that tiny bit more margin of openness, you know, like we're, you know, we're going to be against this kind of racism, but we're not going to ordain people of color in our churches, you know, just a tiny inch more margin that they allow for for people of color than they pat themselves on the back and say, see, we aren't racist or see, we're really progressive. Is that what you're saying? Is that what I'm hearing you what say? I, what I'm saying is um, whether or not someone, a church values themselves as being conservative or progressive in this, in the U.S., especially when we talk about white denominations, yes. that their commitment is more to whiteness than to anything else. And that many okay. progressive spaces have not admitted that to themselves, that <clears throat> Even when you have these splits and you have these splits of ideology, you do not have splits around practice, right? Okay. And so that's that's the difference, right? Yeah, that's, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that's true. Yeah. I, but, go on. Because uh, one thing that I like to point out to people is when we talk about different um, implications of our theology around practice around that practice, right? So I see three major places when we talk about transness and being thoughtful around transness or blackness or brownness within main, within spaces that we perceive as mainstream, right? So I see defensive theology, right? So especially when we talk about transness and queerness in the space of which, you know, we're constantly having to argue back and forth between six to seven scriptures, right? I see this liberation theology piece. So so could, oh, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I yeah, just yeah. would no love worries. to like back up and, and hear more about that. Defensive theology. Yeah. So... So what what do you mean by that? Could you unpack that a bit more? Yeah, defensive theology and in the ways especially I'm using it today is theology in which there are... So for me, when I think about the uh, Quran and the Bible and just Abrahamic tradition in general, right? There's six to seven scriptures in total that people typically use to say that um, LGBTQ folks as a whole or specific segments of LGBTQ community are somehow sinful or against God or all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. The most scriptures obviously being in the Bible, right? Yes. Um, right. And so at worst, you know, or at, at best, really, if you decide those scriptures are not actually anti-LGBTQ or anti-queer, anti-trans or anything like that, um, you have proved that they're neutral and not about us at all. Um, at worst, you're in a long-standing conversation with a bigot and it actually proved nothing. <laughs> that was actually a really big waste of your time because there's millions of other scriptures, yeah. right? Um, the other place when we talk about liberation theology is when we talk about scripture. So I know you had uh, Peterson Toscano on a little while ago. And so Peterson... Yeah. Yes, he's yeah, great. Yeah, Peterson is great. And so Peterson is someone I've gotten to work with over the years in different spaces. Um, I would say a lot of the work that Peterson does is liberation theology, I would say. And there's also major, uh, it's a whole field of theology, right, where you can actually find trans and queer bodies in text, where you can actually look at black liberation and racial justice in text. You can look at all these different things. And that's actually not just about us, but affirming of us in all those spaces, right? What I think most quote-unquote progressive churches are actually doing, and I use progressive, y'all can't see me when you're listening to the podcast, but yeah. I see the quotes. Air quotes. <laughs> like, 
quotes. Stephen can see the, you know, <laughs> um, Yes. But that most of them are doing acceptance theology. And so acceptance theology to me is this place in which uh, I acknowledge that you're here, right? It's a place in which I go to a church and I say, well, how are trans people affirmed? And folks will say things like, oh, well, well, God is love. And so that's what it is. It's like, well, you know, the people using scripture to legislate against me got a whole effing, like have a whole library of books of theology they're using against me. So that's a very lazy theology, right? Exactly. Well, okay. Like say that, okay. This drives me nuts. It drives, to me, that is the equivalent of saying thoughts and prayers when there's a mass shooting. And uh, yeah, that it's the exact same thing. And if it isn't translated into some kind of feasible Mm -hmm. action, you know, I'm not going to say that the thought doesn't matter. I think the heart does matter, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as we want it to. I think the heart matters to people that are already seen as human in the eyes of the person speaking, right? Exactly. Exactly. Going to white spaces, white people, like, I always have white folks that will come up to me afterwards and be like, thank you so much for your work. It's like, but did you hear the part in which you're holding on to stolen wealth? Did you hear the part where uh, right. that are, this group right. here actually is starving? Did you hear the part of, right, because I think about how do churches get the land that they're on, right? And how do I think about the uh, uh, the ways that they participate and, and the wealth, right? That I had someone actually, so the part of my family that's Muslim is part of the Nation of Islam. I had a white, um, Catholic, uh, Christian, queer tell me one day, oh, well, do you know that the Nation of Islam is seen by the Southern Poverty Law Center to be a hate, hate group. And so I had to talk to that person. I said, do you know how many millions of people the Catholic Church has murdered and continues to profit off of. And I want you to name for me how many people, for real, and I need you to name for me how many people the Nation of Islam has killed. I need you to name that for me because what white people do is do false equivalencies around ideology and and not anything when it comes to actual practice, right? And so thinking about even as we see this huge scandal with the Catholic Church around sexual assault and sexual violence against children, when we think about places like um, uh, Mormon churches being able to hold on to so much wealth of land, so much wealth of uh, people happened, just so happening to have living apostles that all happen to be white, straight, cis men who are also wealthy, right? All the When we look at Jehovah's Witnesses that didn't get any kind of indoctrination into deciding that black and brown people were okay until the 70s when the U.S. decided that they weren't going to allow them to not be taxed anymore and they didn't let black and brown people in right so it's like so to me the racial injustice in churches is violent and more violent than anywhere else that i see because there's this ongoing Mm. legacy without honesty and there's this ongoing legacy with the assumption that because i've used the words like god i've used words like jesus that i deserve to be to be a past because i'm talking about love it's like love means nothing if you're going to kill me anyway so you have a project if if you don't mind me pivoting here for just uh, a moment uh you have a a project called the Black Trans yes. Prayer Book, and uh, so yeah, you have two projects here actually. So so you have the um the the campaign. Mm. Remind me one more time of the name of that. So campaign. the campaign is the hashtag Transphobia is a Sin campaign. That's it. And then you have the Black Trans Prayer Book, and, and I'm wondering if you could tell me some about those two. Um, so hashtag transphobia is a sin campaign came out of the black trans prayer book. And so what the, uh, black okay. trans prayer book is, it's, uh, so myself and my colleague, Lady Dan Figueroa Ididi are co-editors of this project. And so we are acknowledging a realm of theology that isn't acknowledged right now or doesn't exist quite yet, uh, in, in the typical canon, right, of theology. So what we are doing is we are gathering about 18 or so black trans folks from all over the world to create 
a text that's going to be an interfaith text that addresses spiritual and healing needs of Black trans people, in addition to folks who see them offering sort of theologies for people who see themselves in solidarity with Black trans people, right? So we want to make a more complete theology because people do not consider how is their theology white supremacist, right? How is their theology, how is the theology of passivity, right? That, that lack of when I get people who want to hug me after something versus like actually receiving resources, why is that a benefit to white supremacy and being able to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. We want people to, mm -hmm. you know, and so creating a space where people can also think about the, even the little bit of history that I gave earlier about transphobia on this continent, to be able to link transphobia to white supremacy and those roots and people being clear on fighting transphobia means to be fighting racial justice, right? Yes. And so this text is going to be out uh, at the end of either this year or early next year. And what we sort of realized we're doing the Black Trans Prayer Book and doing this with folks, we realized we also need some other ways to talk to people who don't perceive themselves to be religious, right? And again, this place of knowing that whether or not you are a trans person who is a religious, that your rights and our rights are unfortunately always often dictated by other people's religiosity and really messed up theologies. So the hashtag transphobia yeah. sin campaign is something that people can still participate in. But basically, we've been having people, we had people from six different countries on three different continents participating on all different types of social media. And all they had to do was hold up a sign with one of four phrases on it. And it was either transphobia is a sin, transphobia is haram, trans people are divine, or trans trans people exist because our ancestors existed and use that hashtag transphobia is a sin mm. because we wanted to call attention to religious-based violence in places that were not necessarily just religious, but just that this exists everywhere in all places for trans people. Awesome. That's beautiful. Mm. And it, and this might be a, a stupid question on my part, but is the trans black prayer book, is that going to be like an actual text, right. like a hard copy book that, that people will be able to purchase on a place like Amazon or from your website or something? Yes. Yeah, so people will be able to purchase it online. What I would also say is so that book, so yeah, so let's be real about some of these experiences, right? But that we're working yes. with a group of people and coming from a group of people and a community of people that literally does not have a lot of resources, right? So we know right. that one of three tra Black trans people will make less than $10,000 a year. We know that uh, we consistently struggle with housing, all these other kinds of things. Um, and again, we get pushed out of religious spaces of all kinds because they're because of the things that people are invested in. People are often invested in niceties to systems of power more than they're invested to being nice, thoughtful, and considerate of people who actually experience harm, right? Uh, and so if people want to donate to help make that happen and to ensure that we can pay everybody to be a, who's a part of this project, we have a GoFundMe up right now. Fantastic. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, so people can definitely can donate to that now. And we, we welcome any size donation. And we ask also congregations. You can get your congregation involved to also, um, to also participate in uh, sending us things. So we have a few different congregations that have been pulling together to do that, as well as we will actually have the book on, um, yeah, like I said, so we'll be available online for people to purchase as and people will be able to also bring us out to share different parts of the book to share different workshops on theology we love getting into the nitty-gritty with people about theology in all kinds of spaces so uh here's a question that i find myself asking a lot of people mm -hmm. <clears throat> i don't know if you know dr robin they they were just recently on my mm -hmm. show and, and i asked them the same question you know they they do fantastic trans activism uh founder of uh activist theology and and just an incredible mm -hmm. person and i and i'm finding myself asking this question more often because it comes out of my experience of doing the work that i do i find that i talk 
to many people who are not where I am yet or people who I think are active, whose ideologies are actively evil. Mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and say Which is that, important that I, to name. You know, I, That's some- yes, exactly. I think ideas are can be yes. evil. And, uh, and But I often find myself engaging in conversation with a lot of these people. And frankly, there have been times of my life where there have been whole seasons, sometimes for years, where I just can't do it because it's too much and it's too hard. And I had to learn that it is that I am not under any obligation to do that work that I must first and foremost take care of myself. And I can't imagine that the work you do isn't exhausting. I'm sure it's exhilarating. I'm sure it's wonderful. But I also have to imagine that it is fatiguing. And um, and I'm I mean, like, I, I have to imagine that maybe even having this conversation is fatiguing. And so What's what forms of of self care do you do? How how do you keep yourself going? How do you sustain yourself and your energy? What methods of self care do you use to make the work you do sustainable? Um, I think by creating the resources that we need. So this for me doing yeah. the Black Trans Prayer Book with uh, someone I love and care about, which is Dane. Um, you know, we get to pour into people that that are of our community that we don't have to explain ourselves to that automatically know who we are. Absolutely. That, um, like we're paying every contributor. And I think it's important. To, I want to name the money part of this, right? But so we're paying each contributor to our book that's uh, coming with us to this one retreat. We're paying them $1,000 to do this book, right? Which I don't know if anyone's been a part of an anthology before, uh, but I've never been paid that much for an anthology. Like I've been paid like maybe at max $100 at a copy of the book, you know? Um, right. <laughs> and so we're being very intentional with people that we know do not get cared for often, right? Um, and I don't think that people really... I think that especially if white folks, if cis folks understood the level of trauma that we experience as black trans people, their heads would explode. Because I, I, I don't, the ability right. to kind of go, again, as we talked about having to be normal and act normal in situations in which your whole life is unraveling often, <laughs> you know, um, is really exhausting. And so being able to, so for me, doing this project and holding institutions accountable by being able to say like, yeah, a lot of the theology that you spit is white supremacist theology. And you have to reconcile that or that institutions have a responsibility to participate in reparations, right? In spaces in which they profited consistently off of the uh, subordination of black and brown bodies, right? In all these different ways that even when we talk about LGBTQ mainstream spaces and white spaces, how they profited off of the horror stories that happened to trans people of color and the experience of trans people of color and learning how to organize from trans people of color and how to how to uh, make certain resources happen from trans people of color while also being okay with our death, right? Like all these things mean that it has never been, I've, I, it's been years for me to feel like it was my responsibility to teach people something versus like my number one survival piece is being with people who are invested in my survival too. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's something that you said that 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 you've been coming back to kind of again and again through this conversation mm-hmm. is pieces of white progressive theology that are in and of themselves racist and transphobic. Mm-hmm. And and is there could we dig into that a bit more? Are there are there some specific forms uh, you know, I I think we we've definitely talked about the way some some white you know, white 
uh, progressive people live and respond is transphobic. Are are there pieces of theology in themselves? Are there theological tenets that by their nature are transphobic and racist? I would say. <laughs> and, 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 could you, and could you unpack yeah, those? Yeah, because I like the whole thing. No, um, <laughs> You're so, like all of it. Um, one story that I would say is um, that I think of a lot. Uh, so one, if you go into a church and you see a white Jesus, if your Jesus has blue eyes on your wall, okay, there is no reason for that. No reason. That doesn't even make, doesn't make logical sense. Absolutely. Right? Doesn't make historical sense. Doesn't make any sense. So your of image sense. of God is already skewed. So I just want to say, if you grew up with a blue-eyed Jesus on your wall, yes. you've already grown up with a picture yes. who is what a, a picture of a pope's son or someone like that that image of god right all these images of god yeah is never is not a real jesus <laughs> it's not a real uh, person connected to any kind of spiritual power right when we think about even the ways that we mm. gather right the fact that we can be gaining millions of dollars through churches <laughs> in spaces in which i think we're asked by jesus to be gathering in small circles and small groups of people and yet we've created this whole institutions based off capitalism right so even that framework right <laughs> about how we gather is actually very invested in white supremacy, right? And holding on to white wealth, right? Holding on to white rights to land. All that is not about actually spreading the message of God, yes. right? When we think about, yes. to me, one particular Bible story that I was that I've heard over the years is the story of Joseph of Genesis, which I like to talk. I love Joseph of Genesis for so many reasons, but so Joseph of Genesis, who is Yusuf in the Quran, but so Joseph, for those who don't quite remember the entire story, but Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat, you know, who um, oftentimes I hear that story told as a tale of forgiveness that Joseph forgives their brothers for all this violence that Joseph experienced, or, you know, Joseph forgives their family, all this stuff. And really that's a story about accountability. Joseph scared the crap out of their family members because they they did wrong and they messed up and Joseph had a right to decide whether or not they were going to forgive their family right and put them through some serious serious measures there's a way in which white institutions and the ways that we teach so for me it's also primarily in the ways that theology is taught and scripture is taught and told that there's a way that white institutions consistently want to be forgiven for stuff they're still doing and constantly want to be forgiven for stuff they're still doing it's like mm, white yes like, yeah Yes. White folks will consistently talk about the length of process it takes to to not be racist versus like, how long did it take for your ancestors to kill a bunch of indigenous people? How long did it take for you to, uh, uh, yeah. to, to build all this wealth, to do all these things? It's like change does not always happen over long periods of time. Sometimes change is instantaneous. So, so basically what you're referring to is like this attitude of, oh, you know, you need to give racist right. time and space to kind but of, even, yes. Okay, but got so it. even acknowledging that by, again, default, that whole system of white churches is racist. It, of itself, if you show up on a brown continent okay. to a majority white church, know that your church is white supremacist space. You know, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. That make that absolutely makes sense. Now you come from a, if I'm understanding correctly, you come from a uh, Muslim tradition as well as a Christian right. tradition. Yes. Am I right? And that could could you talk some about that? Uh, do you still hold? Do you do you continue to incorporate both traditions into your uh, spiritual practice? Most definitely, I would say that for me, even when I do a lot of theolog theological work, I really like to spend a lot of time on religious traditions or religious stories and scripture stories that are both in Quran and Bible, because um, that's more authentic to who I am. I think a lot about... Okay. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, they're continuation stories. And so... I would say for me also being coming from a black family 
on the East Coast, coming out of Philly, that uh, so many of us have that story of coming from both uh, Christian and Muslim spaces. Mm, yeah. yeah. So to me, that's every day. So, so to you, so to you, would you not necessarily call yourself more one or the other, but that it is a marriage of the two? I would say it's it's it definitely has to be both those things. I would say as I got older, I'm cool. more intentional about how I spend time within Islam spaces and Muslim spaces, uh, just because I think that you know a lot of the uh, the amount of Islamophobia that exists in so many spaces causes me to yeah to definitely reach out to those spaces more. Yeah, but both of them are both part of my traditions. Is is that uh, something more unique to you, or is that broad in in your community of of kind of this marriage of Islam and Christianity, or or of these different traditions and and kind of moving through them? Is is that kind of a common thing? I see it as very common. So I think that um okay. especially when you're talking about okay. folks connected to Nation of Islam over the years, it's like coming from uh, black traditions in that way. In the U.S., I think it's very common okay. in especially cities like Philly and Chicago and Detroit. Um, yeah, and L.A. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, you know, I'm I'm just learning a lot and I'm very ignorant. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I appreciate you educating me here. Are there so we're coming we're we're close to the uh, the hour mm-hmm. point here. Uh, are there any other final thought or final any final insights or thoughts that you want to pass on to me and my listeners? Um, I think that so just the same piece that I think that always happens is usually what I end up getting from people in spaces. So if there are listeners that are sitting here and thinking like, oh, I just learned something new and isn't that sweet or great, you know, uh, yeah, like if you finish this and you don't like, I'm saying that it's not even just like, I want you to feel this way, but it's your responsibility to redistribute resources. I think it's your responsibility. Yes. Like, I, I actually challenge you, like, if not you, someone, ask a friend, ask whoever, I don't care what money you have in your bank account, but that knowing that you even are tied to institutions that have resources that come from a legacy of uh, objectifying and subjecting black and brown bodies to violence, right? And still do, yes. right? That you have responsibilities yes. to. I don't care if it's $5 into this little GoFundMe that we got. I don't care if it's going on to GoFundMe and like looking up hashtag TGNC fund and putting money into trans folks of colors, GoFundMes, but that you have a responsibility to not just talk about resources and talk about stuff and feel good about yourself, right? But know that people that call themselves in love do lots of violent shit in the name of white supremacy every day. So I challenge y'all to donate to the Black Transparent Book so that we can make sure this happens and that we can make resources that need to happen happen. Um, And I challenge you to continuously be thinking about how you physically redistribute resources to Black and Brown trans people. Absolutely. And is there a very, uh, is there a place to start that you, so you recommended Black Transparent book are there any organizations or or any advocacy groups or anything that you would recommend us investing that to me so as someone so as you all know from my bio i run an organization called awkward what i would say even as someone who runs an organization is that an investment in supporting organizations over individual people is also an investment in a capitalist society and so i also want people to divorce themselves from this idea that only an organization can decide whether or not someone is valuable that even if you go on today i want Mm. you to challenge you to donate to individual black trans people and small groups and like our the black trans prayer book for us is not tied to an organization it is simply tied to uh us as a collective of people getting together and we did that intentionally because we didn't want any organization to own it like no organization gets to own this project right Mm. and so I challenge you to consistently think about believing people about their trauma instead of having to have someone else, another white body validate it for you. Beautiful. All right. Uh, for people who want to find you, contact you, hear your stuff, mm-hmm. check out your 
work? Where can they check you I'm out? I'm pretty obsessed with Instagram right now. So you can find me at jmace the third, which is at jmace, M-A-S-E-I-I-I. Uh, so, or you can find me on my website, www.jm as in Mary, A is an Apple, Sam is in, or S is in Sam, E is an Eagle, I-I-I.com. So yeah, so you can find me. And also I'm on Twitter every now and again. So every now and again, I creep out on Twitter, which you found. <laughs> I feel like, uh, yeah, but mostly Instagram. All right. Beautiful. Well, I've really enjoyed our time thank together you, and thank you so much for taking the time. I so appreciate well, this. And, uh, and I'll go, uh, you know, bother all my fans to go <laughs> donate to, uh, to, uh, black trans prayer well, book. Stuff. All right. Well, that is it for this show. Special thanks to Mace for joining us for this hour. And if you enjoy my work, if you enjoy the conversations that I put out every week, and if you want to help me to continue to bring interesting conversations to the world every single week, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, where you can donate a dollar or five dollars. Every little bit goes a very long way. Also, if you are strapped for cash, don't worry. I completely understand the struggle is real. In which case, the most important thing you can do, regardless of whether you can donate or not, is to just continue to enjoy the show, share it with your friends, share it on social media, and continue to listen to it because it is here first and foremost for your enjoyment and for your education. All right. Well, the music is by The Jelly Rocks and Eleven D Seven. You can find their music on iTunes and Spotify or wherever else you listen to music. The artwork is by Justin Doja Bryant. And as usual, I will see you next week. Peace.